All right. Well, it's good to be back. Been back a week. Last week, of course, I was glad that Jim Myers could come in and cover for me. That was that was a tremendous provision of God because what I, I knew I could usually fly back from over there without a problem, land ten in the morning, get a little nap in the afternoon, and teach at teach at night. But I had forgotten what a grueling trek it is to come back from Jordan. That's almost 40 hours from the time I got up in in Petra and then we just quickly ate breakfast and left to the time I went through the front door. That's a long, hard trek. So uh, I was glad he could cover for me. So we're back on our topic of worship based on the fact that in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, we have the expanded um, expanded uh, treatment of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, coming out of uh, our passage in 2 Samuel. And so that's why we're talking about, about worship and developing that. And um, I guess I run true to form because I did find a tape from uh, about 30... 30, over 30 years ago, when I last taught through this, and when I got to this same passage, I did the same thing. So I guess I'm consistent, if anything else. So anyhow, uh, let me just go over the announcements real quick. We're not going to have the men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning. The deacons will meet at 8 o'clock in the morning because we're having our family fun day from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. here at the church. And so there'll be a lot of activities going on. And, you know, when we talk about Family Fun Day, what most people think about is their family. We're talking about the church family. And so it's, not, it's, it's for families to be able to come, but for the church family to be able to uh, get together and get to know each other. And as a pastor, I encourage everyone to come to these things. Do not take our uh, fellowship as a congregation, our horizontal fellowship for granted. When I, As I mentioned Sunday morning, when I take groups to Israel, and more and more because our congregation, most people who can go have gone, and uh, so we had about, I think about six or eight people from the congregation who went out of 32, which meant 75% of the group came from other places in the United States and around the world. And many of these people are completely isolated from any other even mildly conservative Christian uh, Christian friends or acquaintances. They are just out there. And I get emails from people like this all the time. And they go on a two-week trip to Israel where they're just with like-minded believers. And that's the best part of the whole trip. It's great that they were in Israel and Jerusalem and all those other things. But for them, the highlight was just to be able to spend time with other like-minded believers. So please don't take that for granted. These things that we do are important for building just the the uh, uh, just the relationships within the church. If we're to pray for one another, if we're to encourage one another, if we're to love one another and serve one another, we have to know who one another are. If you don't know who the other people in the congregation are, then how can you fulfill those commands? Anyway, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're just so grateful for your grace. We love you. We love our salvation. We love our Savior. We love all that he has provided for us. We love the fact that that we don't have to earn or deserve anything, but that you have given us everything for life and godliness. You have supplied our every need. You have blessed us richly beyond anything that we can ask or think. And Father, we, some, unfortunately, sometimes we take it for granted. We have had so much. We have been surrounded by such good Bible teaching for much of our lives and by uh, strong believers for much of our life. And and we tend to take that for granted. Father, we pray that we would catch a great understanding of what it means to uh, live for you because in the coming days, as this country drifts and shifts away from your word, it will only get worse. And those uh, friendships, those relationships that we have with other believers are going to become 
uh, more and more significant as we uh, strengthen each other, encourage each other, pray for one another. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you challenge our thinking, help us to understand these important concepts which are so divisive among Christians today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are a lot of theological issues that divide Christians today in our country. People get all wrapped around the axle over Calvinism versus Arminianism. And rightly so, there are important doctrinal issues there. There are important doctrinal issues when it comes to understanding eschatology, and that's important because we're to live today in light of tomorrow. And if you've got a wrong view of God's plan for tomorrow, then that's going to significantly and negatively impact your spiritual life today. Uh, We have to understand what God's plan is. And so you have the big uh, challenge between dispensational theology, which is based on a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture, and all these other views, amillennialism, postmillennialism, progressive dispensationalism, which all violate the basic principles of a literal, historical, grammatical uh, interpretation of Scripture. But one thing that has really divided the church and it has created an environment that appears, it's a fulfillment of what Paul wrote in Timothy. They hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And that has to do with worship. Very few people really focus on what the Word of God says about worship. In fact, what we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years is that the concept of worship has been redefined to restrict its meaning to music, to a certain kind of music, and that that is what worship is. And if you're not doing that, then in the view of some, that is not worship. And this has become extremely divisive. And if there's one thing that I teach consistently from this pulpit that would keep many people from ever coming here. It's what I teach about the Word of God and worship. This is probably, I mean, we think about dispensationalism and free grace and all of these other things, but I'm telling you, on a practical, right, right in the pew issue, it's this issue because for most people, you, you, you can talk about my morals, you can talk about my children, you can talk about my parenting, but don't you mess with my music. Don't be telling me what kind of music I should like. And I'm not trying to do that, but I am trying to show that there are values and there's criteria in Scripture that we should apply to music. Music and the words of music. I mean, we all have our tastes. We all have our favorite groups from whatever generation we were in. But... Music is just as much, has just has been just as much impacted and corrupted by sin. Remember, Satan was involved with music. According to Ezekiel twenty-eight, talks about the instruments. Now, the instruments are neutral, but music can be turned to be a great propaganda tool and to change the thinking of people and to change the culture of people. And this has been recognized by secular philosophers going back to Plato in ancient Greece. He said, you want to change the culture, change the music. And in fact, when the culture changes, the music changes. It's a, it's a cycle that feeds on itself. And so music is very important. One of the reasons I'm bringing it up, we've been talking about the importance of worship as we've gone into Isaiah chapter 6. And a couple of things happened over the time that I've been been um, been away that I just wanted to come back and and bring something uh, to the foreground because it relates to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah six one through nine is is one of the most influential passages in Scripture for hymn or Christian chorus lyrics. Do you realize that? Most of us can think of, well, holy, 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 the trice hagion. We think of that as as one hymn. But um, 
doing a search today on, um, I think it's called hymnary.org or .com, I can't remember exactly, came up with a long list of hymns that were tagged with some verse in Isaiah 6, 1 through 9. I know you can't read all that from where you're sitting, but it, it, and that's not important. What's important is for you to see how long the list is. And all of these different hymns, Here I Am, Lord, uh, Isaiah 6, 8, it's uh, tagged to 35, um, uh, it has, uh, it, 35 different references, something like that. Holy, 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 Isaiah 6, 2 to 3. Uh, in, and holy, holy, holy Lord, Isaiah 6, 3, let all mortal f- flesh uh, keep silence, Isaiah 6, 2 to 3. And you can go on down the list. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, a song that we sing. It re- relates to Isaiah 6, 2. You go further, the God of Abram prays, Isaiah 6, 3. All hail the power of Jesus' name, Isaiah 6, 2 to 3. So you see that, that I, this passage has inspired hymn writers to write lyrics related to the worship of God, the magnificence of God, the the holiness of God. And so, uh, nevertheless, we need to be in a position to evaluate some of these things. Now, recently, I ran across a very popular chorus, and I thought that I I started looking at it because I wanted to do this as we got into the passage. And, of course, in the lesson before I left for Israel, we went through the passage uh, of Isaiah 6-3 where the seraphim are uh, singing to one another, crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so here is a, a popular chorus, very popular, that is uh, sung. And I want you to think about these words. Uh, the, the chorus itself was written by a man named Paul Beloche. He wrote the lyrics. It was sung by a very popular, well-known Christian artist, Michael W. Smith, who's been around for at least, at least 30, 35 years. And a lot of people sing this. And I want you to notice, here's the whole thing. We'll break it down so you can see the words. But they're... First of all, when you read the words, the one of the things that we should do that I'm trying to teach us is that worship, whatever we're doing in worship, it is to be as qualitative as we can do it. Now, if you've got a church of 500 people and you have the kind of choir they have uh, at some churches, there are some things you can do that a small church cannot do. So... a small church of 50, 100, 150 people is just not going to be able to do the kinds of things that a larger congregation can do. So there's not, uh, it, it, I'm not saying that every congregation should be able to do a, um, you know, a magnificent uh, chorale at Christmas, something like that. We're, we're not going to um, be doing something like that. But what we do we should do well. And as part of that, a corollary is that that uh, many of us are not trained musicians. We don't have an education in music. We have not excelled in music. And so when it comes to evaluating music, what most of us do is we think it's good music if we like it. And I don't know that there, there's something inherently wrong or evil with that, but that's not a good enough criteria for determining the kind of music that should be ch- sung in church. That's a very subjective reason. And when we look at music, though, we ought to listen to people who really know good music. The same thing could be applied to food. If you are going to cook for somebody very special and you may not be a great chef, but you're going to go to people who are great cooks and look for recipes by those people and try to duplicate that because you want to be you want to do something to your very best, better than your best, in order to honor the person that you're cooking for. 
And so what we do in other areas of life when we are going to do something is we look for people who are experts in that area and learn from them so that they lift us up above the level of our background, our training, our education, so that we can learn to do things better and better, unless it comes to music. Because we have been schooled by our culture to like what everybody else likes and what's in the top 10 or the top 20 and what stirs our emotions. And the, um, the stirring of our emotions is more often the result of the music than the lyrics. And when we look at good hymns, we ask the question, what makes a song good and qualitative to sing before the Lord? First of all, we need to understand that the words themselves have to be of a high level. They have to have uh, good theological content, but it has to be expressed well. If it's expressed poorly, why waste your time singing hymns that are where the words express the truth poorly when there are so many other songs and hymns that express the truth exquisitely? We should look for those. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. But one of the ways to do that is just to separate out the music and look at just the words. The words of any song are basically poetry. You basically look at just the word, just the lyrics, and say, well, is this good poetry or is this bad poetry? Is this trite and trivial poetry? Is this just silly poetry? Is this juvenile poetry? Is this something that is just terribly superficial and uh, doesn't really bring honor and glory to the majestic, incredible God that we are worshiping. And that is uh, something that is very important for us to understand. So I'm going to put these lyrics up here to this particular song because it's based on Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 6, 6, 3. So we'll just start off, and the way this song goes is it starts on the left, it's two columns, but you would sing through this, and then you come down to the, towards the bottom, and you just, there's a repetition of this stanza, and it's repeated a second time, and then this stanza repeats the one before it, and actually the way it's designed is that you would uh, sing this stanza two more times, and then this stanza that's repeated here three times, you would sing that five more times. It's just endless repetition that mirrors the techniques of Indian uh, mystical chants. By Indian, I mean uh, India, Hindu chants, things of that nature. And so that is not what you see in historic biblical hymnody that goes back to the early church. We have a great treasure trove of, of hymns. It's not like we don't know of anything written before the 1800s. We have a great treasure trove. Not all of it's good. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. We have to take each thing in and of itself. So let's just look at this. You look at the words, and the first thing we want to do is just uh, evaluate it as poetry. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. And see, that's that. I just read that, and then we go back to the first stanza. So, is this good poetry? No, it is not good poetry. It is, in fact, I sent this out to two or three people just to make sure I wasn't being somewhat um, subjective in my own evaluation. And there were certain words that I thought of, and they came back to me. It's insipid. It's 
juvenile. It's shallow. I mean, it's not even an eighth of an inch deep. I believe that if a fifth grader submitted this in a poetry homework assignment, they would get an F. It is so bad. And yet this is a top hit. It was originally sung back in the 80s, and it is still sung in some churches. And what that does is it degrades the understanding of the congregation as to what quality music is. I mean, it's it's terrible. And all we're talking about at this point is just a level of, of poetry. Now, some lyrics can be simple without being insipid. There's a difference. It doesn't always have to be something that is, that is expressed in a complicated uh, manner. But this is what we see in this. Now, we can go back and we can talk about it in terms of its theology. Now, the first line begins, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Now, if you look at this in terms of, in terms of Scripture... Where do you get this idea of opening my eyes? We find that in a number of hymns, by the way. And in this particular version, you have a Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. So Psalm 119 is a hymn of praise that was written to praise and extol the value of God's word. So the focus of opening my eyes, stated as a prayer, is to open our eyes so that we can understand what God has revealed to us. But what we see in this phrase is not opening my eyes so that I can understand your revelation, but opening my eyes so that I can see you, Lord. Well, that sounds like a nice thing to do. We want to see Jesus. But if you understand the first thing about Scripture, you know that that is not a very good thing. In fact, when we look at our passage in Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to see that seeing God is a dreadful thing. It is something that strikes fear into the heart of Isaiah. And it's not just Isaiah. There's another popular hymn, or chorus rather, that I'll mention. It's in our hymnal. Let me see. I guess I don't have a hymnal up here. I'll get this one. But this came out in the 70s. Very popular, still popular, still sung by by a lot of people. It was first sung by the uh, Maranatha group, which came out of Calvary Chapel. And I was looking to see if I could find a rendition of this to play for you, and I decided I am going to play something for you, but I'm going to uh, wait and do that a little later. Um, This is 383 in our hymnal, and the words are, Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. expresses the same concept we had here. Now, I also wanted to point out, as we look at, at this hymn, that it says, to see you high and lifted up. Where does that language come from? It, again, comes out of Isaiah 6, talking about God being high and lifted up. Uh, in um, verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. I want you to notice how it uses biblical language and phrases, but in a non-biblical way. But people who don't know the Bible get sucked in because of the music, and it appeals emotionally, and because it's a sentimental thought that we think sounds good. But... Same thing in hymn 383, open our eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus to reach out and touch him and say that I love him. Open my ears, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. Now, who would we go to in the Bible who saw Jesus after the resurrection? There are two people, three people. 
Stephen saw the Lord as he was dying. He saw the Lord at the right hand of God in heaven. We see Paul where the Lord appeared to him on the road to Emmaus. And the apostle John had the Lord appear to him on the island of Patmos. And when Paul saw the Lord, what happened? He was blinded and he fell on his face. This is not a feel-good moment for Paul. It's not a feel-good moment for John. Revelation 1.17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It's the same thing we see in Isaiah. I pointed this out, that when Isaiah saw the, the Lord on his throne in heaven, saw God on his throne in heaven, what was his response? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was not a good thing for him. It put the fear of God deep into his soul. But American evangelicalism wants to have these sentimental, emotional, feel-good moments. But that's not what the Scripture says. When people are confronted with the presence of God, the holy, majestic, all-powerful God, it is a fearful thing for them, for believers, for those who God has called to ministry, for those whom Jesus loved, because the Apostle Paul was the apostle whom Jesus loved. But when we as fallen creatures come face to face with a holy, righteous, just God, it is not a pleasant thing. So, they pick up one idea out of Scripture, open my eyes, oh, that sounds good, and then they take it out of context. The focus here is open my eyes so that I can see Scripture, not so that I can see you. In Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't pray, God, I want to see you. It becomes a devastating thing in Isaiah 6.5. Now, I looked around at some other, other hymns, and there's one in the hymnal. This is a, it was a popular Baptist uh, hymn on 381 called, Open My Eyes That I May See. Now, I could quibble with a few things in this um, in this hymn and the way a few things are stated, but, but they're not major, major issues. I'm not exactly the most fond of the, um, of the music, but it's, it's not bad poetry. In fact, in talking to someone today, they said they love to sing this, somebody with a lot of discernment. They love to sing this. It's a joy to sing the melody and to sing the words that are in this song. It's, it's, in their opinion, it's good Poetry. Open my eyes that I may see. See what? Glimpses of truth. Now there's the biblical concept as expressed in Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see your word. So the writer is saying, open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth you have for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unlock and set me free. Jesus said, you know the truth, it will set you free. This is a strong biblical concept here. And the truth, of course, is God's word. As, as Jesus prayed in John 17, uh, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Silently now, on bended knee, ready I wait your will to see. Open mine eyes, Illumine me, Spirit divine. It's the role of God, the Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our souls, open our eyes so that we can understand the truth of God's Word. On a sheer poetry basis, it's good. The words are good. On a theology basis, the words are good. They reflect the truth of Scripture. They reflect more complex ideas. When you look at the previous two choruses, they're all about me. I want to see Jesus. Open my eyes so I can see Jesus. It's very self-oriented, which is the problem with most contemporary choruses. But this is 
theocentric. It's God-centered. Open my eyes so that I can understand truth, and truth will transform my life. The second verse says, open my ears that I may hear voices of truth you send so clear. Who are the voices of truth? People who are teaching the Word of God. And while the message sounds in my ear, everything false will disappear. Hearing the truth of God's Word teaches you to discern truth from error. And again, it's done prayerfully, silently now, on bended knee, ready, I wait your will to see. Open my ears, illumine me, Spirit divine. Third, open my mouth. It's application. Open my mouth and let me bear gladly the warm truth everywhere. Open my heart and let me prepare love with your children thus to share. So see, the object there is not about me and my experience with God. It is about learning and applying the Word of God. Uh, This is very important. Now, I We talked initially about the chorus. I'll back it up a little bit to the first. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Now, we just talked about the words. Do the words, by their profound expression, the articulateness of this poetry, lift your spirit, lift your focus to God? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this because I know that I'll be disappointed. But I bet there's not four people here that took the time, which you should have done, to watch Barbara Bush's funeral service or to watch the marriage, the wedding service of Megyn Kelly um, to uh, Prince Harry. Why would I waste my time doing that? Because you learn something about the history of hymnody. You watch these great British monarchs go through weddings and funerals that are all based on the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. The preaching may be horrid, but the music and the worship service was thought through by great theologians. And you listen to those hymns, just the music, the organ playing that music in this Gothic cathedral. Now, a, the Gothic architecture was designed to do what? You have these high arches. Everything is designed so when you walk in, you look up. It's designed to make you look toward heaven and toward God. And when you hear the music that was sung, that music also, the music itself is so majestic, it is so powerful that it causes you to do the same thing. That is why these hymns that have survived centuries continue to be sung at these events. These are not pop songs. And you'll see the contrast as you go through the the wedding ceremony with um, uh, Meghan and um, and Prince Harry, that they brought in a black choir from Chicago. They were just outstanding in what they sang. It's a pop tune. And if your soul is attuned to what was happening spiritually with the previous hymns, then the eyes of your soul went from heaven crashing down to earth when you heard this pop tune sung beautifully by this black choir. That's the contrast I want people to understand about music. Music directs our attention to heaven or to earth. Just the music, the quality of it. The music is a language. We go back to what uh, Dr. Scott Annual taught back in, I think it was 2013. He's now a professor at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, completed his doctorate. He talked talked about music is a language. The music alone communicates something. Are we communicating the grandeur, the majesty, the sublimity, the power of God in the music that we put to our, our hymns? 
Now, there's a lot of fun songs that we can sing as Christians. There's a lot of good songs to teach kids. There are what I call, uh, on the previous generation, Bible choruses. They were great to teach kids the books of the Bible, but, but we don't sing those at the beginning of church. But they're great in certain settings. Some of the things that you can sing that are kind of fun and they have spiritual truth that you can sing at a Christian camp. But when you want to focus people's mind, when you want to have music that is going to support intellectual activity and divert from the chaos and corruption of the world, you sing a different kind of music, a music that helps you to focus, to discipline, and to to concentrate. And that's why I chose to do this uh, tonight. I want to get, play this because we've talked about this just in terms of the basic uh, words. And now I want you to hear and think about, I'm not going to play the whole thing all the way through, but think about what the music is doing to you in contrast to what the words did. Okay, remember, you weren't impressed with the words. They didn't lift you up. They didn't direct your attention to God. They didn't really do a lot for you emotionally. Listen to this. What's the music doing? It's making you feel good. It, you know, you oh yeah, this is good. I can kind of mute, move to the music. You know, tap my toe. Yeah, this is making me feel good. Now, what should drive your emotions toward God? The words or the music? The word, if you're being driven, if your emotion, you're thinking about God is driven by the music, then what you're basically saying is that the words don't matter. It's just about the music. That's what makes me feel good. But if you think through the, just the lyrics of the great hymns of the faith, then you realize that it's the content of those words that lifts your soul toward God not the music. So, back to a new hymn that I just heard about or just discovered recently, and I'm going to put the words up here. Go back to the screen here. Let me see. Okay. This hymn was written in the 18th century. And these words are typical of great hymns. The focus, number one, is on God, not on me. It's not on my experience. It's on who God is and what God has done for us in his great love for us and the salvation that he has given. O thou in whose presence my soul... Just think about this as poetry. O thou in whose presence my soul takes delight on whom in affliction I call, my comfort by day and my song in the night, my hope, my salvation, my all. Where dost thou, dear shepherd, resort with thy sheep to feed them in pastures of love? Say, why in the valley of death should I weep or alone in the wilderness rove? What's happened between the first stanza and the second? The first stanza talks about the delight in God, but it moves into personal affliction 
But the focus is on God as the one who comforts us and who is our hope and our salvation. But then by the time you get into the second one, there's a sense of distance from this from God. It ends it's built heavily, inspired by Psalm twenty three, uses all the imagery of the twenty third Psalm. And in say, why in the valley of death should I weep? Or alone in the wilderness rove. He's alone, he's away from his God. And then the third verse picks up on that in logical progression. Oh, why should I wander an alien from thee? See, he's wandering. Now he's out of fellowship. Or cry in the desert for bread. Thy foes will rejoice when my sorrows they see and smile at the tears I have shed. We've all been there, out in the desert of carnality. And then there's the prayer of restoration. Restore, my dear Savior, the light of thy face. The soul-cheering comfort impart. And let the sweet tokens of pardoning grace, that's forgiveness, bring joy to my desolate heart. And then there's this great closing verse. Notice how it expresses the majesty and the magnificence of God. He looks and ten thousands of angels rejoice and myriads wait for his word. God just speaks. That's Genesis 1 and God said. He decrees and it is. And the angels are waiting to carry out his commands. And myriads wait for his word. He speaks and eternity filled with his voice re-echoes the praise of the Lord. Aren't those words great? Those words inspire. Those words lift up our soul. Those words have content that, make a, that draw us into thinking about God's character, who he is, and his grace, and what he has done for us. The music is, should be secondary to that. But what we see in so much contemporary music is the music overwhelms the words and it's the music that drives the emotion. And you read something like that, and those words are what cause an emotional response. There's nothing wrong with having an emotional response. I think Isaiah had an emotional response in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. He had an emotional response. But it's not because of the music of what the angels were singing. It's because of the words they're talking about, a holy, righteous God, and he's not holy or righteous. So this is a focus. This is what we have learned as we've gone through Isaiah. And this is why when we look at Scripture and we talk about these things related to worship, worship is something that is has a subjective element, but it has an objective element to it. And when the Scripture talks about worship, and we see these examples of worship, we should be able to think through what we're seeing and what we're reading and be able then to apply it to our situation in life. When we go to a church, we go to some some place where people are singing about the Lord, we ought to be able to think about it from a biblical perspective. This going through an exercise like that is something that is that is very practical for us. It is applicational. It's how do we think about singing and music in light of what God says. So, as I was wrapping up some three or four weeks ago before I left for Israel... We talked about what is being said here, the response of Isaiah. As he hears the uh, saying of the seraphim as they sing or say praise to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We talked about these words, that holiness means to be one of a kind, to distinct, to be set apart. And the word for glory has to do with something significant, its vitality. 
its its uh, importance to everything that is going on. Without God, there is nothing. He is central to everything in the universe, and he is central to and should be central to everything. That's everything in our lives. That's how we glorify God, is by making him the centerpiece of everything that we're doing in life, because what that shows is that God truly is important. He's important in what I do every day. He's important on how I manage my money. He's important in relationship to uh, how I treat the people around me. He's important on how I do business and how I conduct myself as an employer, as an employee, or somewhere in between. He, he is important to how I treat my spouse, how my marriage is conducted, how I rear my children. He is central to everything that I am doing in life. He is central to my entertainment choices. He is central to how I respond in sports events, if, I'm, if I win or if I lose. He's central to everything, and I, my life is to demonstrate that without God, I am nothing. That's what it means to glorify God. And to be able to do that, we have to understand what the Word of God actually teaches and what it says. So we talked about holiness. It's unique. Every aspect of God's character, his ten attributes, is unique. We went on to talk about Isaiah's response, Isaiah 6, 5. He responds, he is not holy. He is uh, a sinner. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's not just me, it's everybody. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he is, uh, the term woe is a term, in the Hebrew, the word is oi. Comes over into Yiddish as oi. And you hear this, you know, in in common expression as it's been brought over into English. Something happens, it's terrible, you go, oi, that's terrible. Well, that goes back to this word for oi. It, it, it means something horrible has happened. There is, and in its context in the Old Testament, it's an announcement of God's judgment, that I am going to be the object of God's judgment. And that is what Isaiah is saying here. I am the object of God's judgment because now I'm in his presence. This isn't this trite idea in these Christian choruses that open my eyes so I can see Jesus. His eyes are open. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he wants to crawl into the earth. It's not a pleasant experience. We talked about these words important words, that the fear of the Lord is to adore him and to submit to him, that there is an element of, of uncertainty. God isn't a big Santa Claus that's just going to pat us on the hand and tell us everything is going to be good. There is a fearful element to this. We are Ephesians 5.21 says we're to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. There is the implication there that even though we're saved and we'll spend eternity in heaven, there's going to be a judgment, an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ to determine, to determine our future roles and responsibilities in heaven. We see the concept of the fear of God in these various passages like Hebrews 12, 28, 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, that's other believers. Fear God and honor the king. We see the response of worship from, from Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5 and his recognition of a need for cleansing. And so he is cleansed. We, we have to be cleansed of sin, and sin pervades our lives. I got a, t a question today, came in from uh, one of the people on the, on the Israel trip and asked a question many of us have asked is, I commit so many sins, and some of them I don't even know are sin, so if I confess my sin and I'm out and I'm in fellowship, how do I know when I'm out of fellowship? Because if I've committed some sin and I don't know it's a sin, I'll be out of fellowship. Well, trust me. This is how it works. 
once you're out of fellowship, you're just you're going to commit a known sin pretty fast. <laughs> you may have committed an unknown sin that got you out of fellowship, but it's just going to be seconds, less than a few minutes, and you're going to be committing something that you know is a sin. And then you can confess that, and all our sins are forgiven. We're cleansed of all unrighteousness, not just the ones uh, we mentioned. We looked at other key words like the word for contrite, the word for humble, uh, that the word for contrite is a physical, very physical word, the crushing of stone, the physical crushing of something. And here it's applied metaphorically to someone's soul, to their thinking that they, they feel that they have been crushed. They, they're not arrogant or pride. They've been shot down. We all know what that means. And so this is used in passages like, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such you have a contrite spirit. Your pride, your arrogance has been broken. That's what contrite means. It's been crushed. You're no longer thinking you can do it your way, in your power, in your ability. The word humble is also used in that passage that it means someone is low, they, they, they have become humbled. Uh, Psalm 138, 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So humble is in contrast to proud. Proud is someone who is self-sufficient, who thinks he can live his life, solve his problems, uh, make decisions apart from any input from God that he is self-sufficient. But the warning of Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. And so the person who humbles himself under the mighty hand of God, as we have in Proverbs three thirty-four and 1 Peter 5, uh, 5, 5 at the end, uh, God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time by casting all your care upon him. We need to be submissive to God. And that brings us to the next key word that we find in passages related to, uh, to, to worship. We have the word hava, which is used in all of these passages and it has the basic meaning. It's only used in the Eshtafel stem. Hebrew has these various stems, okay? When you get into Hebrew, you get into all of this. But words will have certain meanings and only be used in certain stems. And this one only occurs in the Hishtafel stem, which is why you don't you see the long word there, Hishtahava. See, the word is Hava. You see that at the end. The way you know it's a hishtafel is because it has that hishta as a prefix, and it has to do with reflexive action, like the middle voice in, in Greek. So it means to prostrate yourself or bow yourself down to the ground. It's used in Genesis 22.5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, that's Isaac, and I will go yonder and worship. We will bow down to the ground. We will submit ourselves to God. And what was God's command? That Abraham would sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the promised seed, that Abraham would sacrifice Isaac to God, and they were, he was going to submit himself to God. That's how we worship in our lives. We submit to God's authority. And corporate worship is a sign of the body of Christ coming together to express our gratitude to God and our submission to his word as it is taught in the worship service. So this is what he says. I want you just a couple of things to note here is even in this statement, Abraham says, we're going to come back to you. He knows he's going to go. But as Hebrews tells us, he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So even if he killed him, he would give him back, and he's confident we'll come back to you. That's how Abraham passed uh, that test. Exodus 4, 30 and 31, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed 
I don't think this means that they got saved at this point. I think most of them were already saved. But it's just like in the Christian life, as we learn and grow, we hear things, we read the Word, and we believe it. Now, we believe it in terms of post-salvation spiritual growth. We believe the promises of God. And so the people believed that Moses and Aaron were sent by God. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. They're not singing, shine, Jesus, shine. They're not singing, do, Lord. They are praying. That's part of what they are doing. That's one aspect of worship. They are submitting themselves to the plan of God. Second Chronicles 7.3, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, this is when Solomon has dedicated the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, this is how they praised God. They said, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I don't think they were singing this. There's nothing to indicate that. This was what the people, how the people responded. This had been written in the Psalms of David, and they are restating it. It could have been in a chant, which is how some of these were sung. Another key word that we find is the word to serve, the word avad. And it's often linked with the word shamar, as it is in Genesis, that God told Adam, after he placed him in the garden, he said, I want you to, to serve, to work, and to keep the garden. Those two words, which are often associated with worship. The implication of that is our labor in life, our work in life, our career in life, is to worship God through what we do. That every calling, whether you're called to be a garbage collector or you're called to be a carpenter or you're called to be a janitor or you're called to be a president of a company or a teacher, that is a calling from God and we glorify God through our calling, whatever it is, not just for pastors and missionaries and evangelists. We are to uh, keep the Lord's word and we are to serve him. And in serving him, we have an impact on the cosmic system around us. And that is a part of our individual worship. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear the Lord. There's that phrase. That's part of our individual worship of God. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. And in Deuteronomy 10:12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. So right away, you know, we're talking about individual worship and submission to God's authority because he is the unique, magnificent creator of the universe. We're to walk in all of his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 13.4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Again, that clues us in. We're talking about our individual worship and service of the Lord and keep and obey. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Keep his commandments, obey his voice, serve him and hold fast. We are to serve the Lord. Joshua 22, 22.5, but take careful heed to the commandment of the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. So he's reiterating this to the Israelites, telling them to be take heed, to be observant, to care uh, for all, everything, uh, and be careful of their walk with the Lord, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep Shamar, to guard his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him, Abad, with all your heart and with all your soul. And then we have the last uh, word that I have highlighted here, and that is the word sharat, which has to do with ministering or serving. Usually it's applied to that which the priests did in Deuteronomy 10.8. 
At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of, of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to him and to bless in his name uh, to, to this day. So that's what they were doing is they are ministering and serving uh, the Lord. We see the same thing with Samuel, but Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Now the boy Samuel ministered in 1 Samuel 3 1. So this goes on in passages like 1 Kings 8 11. All of this has to do with understanding this role of service. In the New Testament, the word is proskuneo, from a root meaning to kiss. It comes to mean to bow down. You would throw a kiss to the one who is the sovereign, and then it would indicate your submission to them, prostrating yourself. It's used in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, proskuneo, prostrate themselves in reverence by means of the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and by means of of truth. So we're going to stop there and then next time we'll come back to look at the role of God as creator and the role that that plays in worship that creation isn't some secondary doctrine that this issue between creation and evolution uh, is not something that is a distraction but it is at the heart of worship and at the heart of the scriptures. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to think about what we sing, think about what we say, think about how we are to devote ourselves to you in worship and what that means, that it might not be something trivial or perfunctory, but something that is significant and profound in our daily lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.